following teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. Thought of Washington, D.C. When I say Washington, D.C., what comes to your mind? Be nice. <laughs> yeah, I heard it. I, I think of the memorials. Uh, a few years ago, we had a chance to go there, and we, uh, my wife and I went around the National Mall area, and we went at night, which I'd highly recommend if you go, and we were able to see all the different memorials, many of them, Jefferson Memorial, Lincoln, World War II a Veterans Memorial, which was really neat to see at night, uh, Vietnam Memorial Wall, uh, the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, we also got a chance to go and see. There are just these many memorials, and you know, I don't know about you, but when I'm at these memorials, particularly the war memorials, I, I experience a mixture of emotions. I mean, there is the, the sorrow and the regret as I think about this memorial and those who had died as a part of that war. But at the same time, there's this sense of gratitude. Uh, gratitude for their willingness to pay the ultimate sacrifice I remember when I was standing at the World War II memorial and just thinking about this, I was reminded that the sacrifice of those many soldiers and how that freed so many millions and millions of people from oppression and death. And so these memorials, they are indeed a time of sobriety, but, but also one of celebration. And I'm sure that those who gave their lives would want to know that their sacrifice meant something, that what they gave up resulted in good for the world and that we were glad for that and grateful for it. I bring up memorials today because we're going to talk about the most important, in fact, the most profound memorial that exists in history. This memorial, is it's not a wall, it's not a statue, it's not a building. It wasn't something that had to be enacted by a bill from Congress It wasn't something that was put together or that was come up with decades after the one that it commemorates. The church has celebrated this memorial for almost 2,000 years. In fact, we have celebrated it consistently here at Calvary Bible Church for almost 60 years now. In fact, it'll be 60 years coming this next month. You all have your tickets to the anniversary banquet, by the way. Jim, we still got a few out there. Kristen, right? A little side note. Get those out front. But we've been celebrating communion as part as a church for these many decades. And so as a part of our What's Up on Sunday series, I wanted to talk today about something we do each month on Sunday. And that is a special memorial that we have for our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, We refer to it often as communion. And I want to frame our discussion about communion with two questions. The first is, what is communion? And the second is, how are we to observe it? And to answer those questions, we'll be looking at 1 Corinthians 11. So if you could be turning there. It's a familiar text when we talk about communion. In fact, it's probably read from almost every time that we partake of communion together. Many know those verses that talk specifically about communion, but, but not so many know as much about the context. And why did Paul talk about communion in that chapter? What was the flow of thought? How does it fit into his letter? But before getting to the text, 1 Corinthians, I, I want to go back to the 
memorials for a minute. I, I want you to imagine this. I want you to imagine yourself standing in front of the Vietnam Veterans Memorial Wall. You have a relative that you've lost in that war, and so you are looking for his name on that wall. And as you diligently search and you find his name, you then see that his name has been scratched out, that there's graffiti written over it. How would you feel about that? Right? Hurt? Angry? That his name has been disrespected, desecrated, and dishonored? Well, when it comes to Christ's memorial, that is how I feel at times. Because this most sacred of memorials has indeed been desecrated. It's been turned into, by many, a mere ritual. For some, it's regarded as a means of salvation. Others have undervalued it to the point of ignoring it. And for many, it's just a symbolic tradition, an afterthought, something that's just an obligatory activity as, as part of a church service. Some churches, communion has more the feel of a funeral rather than a celebration. I read one author this week who said, it's as if Jesus said, do this in remorse of me rather than in remembrance. Beloved, we need a right understanding of communion so that Jesus will be honored by how we celebrate it together, by how he wants it to be. So to do that, I want to ask him to help us in understanding his word now. So if you please pray with me. Lord Jesus, we we do want to celebrate communion in the way that you desire us to, so that you would be most honored, that you would be blessed by it. Give us understanding by your spirit and this passage, Lord, as we look at it together and that we would clearly understand what communion is all about. And ultimately, we desire to exalt you in everything we do, and especially when we participate in this memorial. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Okay, so let's look at the first point this morning. What What is communion? What is it? You've probably heard it mentioned many different names. Uh, Paul referred to it as the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 20. He called it the Lord's Table, 1 Corinthians 10. And the term communion actually comes from a few verses earlier than that in 1 Corinthians 10, 16, where Paul speaks of it as a, as a koinonia, a sharing in the body and blood of Christ, this idea of communing with him. In that same verse, Paul also called it a breaking of bread. That's a phrase that we see several times in the book of Acts. It likely refers to communion. It's referred to and known by some as the Eucharist. Does anyone know what Eucharist, where that word comes from? It's actually a Greek word. It's Eucharisteo. It means I give thanks. Or in the ceremony, Jesus said he gave thanks and then broke the bread. And of course, the Roman Catholic Church has popularized the term Mass. A mass which comes from the Latin word missa or dismissal. It's part of the last phrase in the concluding formula of the mass. I'll be using the term primarily this morning of communion. For one, it's the most familiar to us, I think. And the other is that I think it's a best fit for the intent of that memorial. And so let's look at 1 Corinthians 11. I'll be starting in the middle of what Tim Adams uh, read from earlier, verse 23. It's there Paul said, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Paul indicates here, he says, I received these words from the Lord and I delivered them to you. It could mean that he either received them directly as a direct revelation from Christ. Uh, We see in Acts several examples of that where Paul received revelation from Jesus. Or it could mean simply that they were passed on to him from somebody who had heard them from Christ. That probably is more likely the case here. But, But either way, these are words which were spoken from Jesus and have been passed on to Paul. And he was passing them on to the Corinthians. In any event, he quotes words which Jesus spoke when he inaugurated a special event, this special event of communion. And notice Paul says here when these words were spoken. When was that? When were they first spoken by Christ? On the night he was betrayed, right? And what night was that? That was the night that they took Passover meal together. It was the night that right after that meal and the Last Supper in the upper room, Christ went to the Garden of Gethsemane as, and was indeed there betrayed by Christ. And then just a few hours later, he was hanging on a cross. And to understand communion here, as, as Paul is describing in these verses, we, we need to understand the details surrounding that night and what they were celebrating together that night and why Jesus chose that particular occasion to introduce communion. So I want you to take a moment, go over to Luke chapter 22. Luke 22. It's talked about in all the Gospels. We'll be looking at Luke's Gospel. And it was no mere coincidence that Jesus introduced his memorial on the same night of the Passover meal. We need to understand what the Passover is so that we better understand communion. So I need some help here from my Old Testament scholars. What is the Passover meal? What was that? It's a meal during, I heard it, Exodus. In the Exodus, Exodus 11 and 12, describe it. And you remember what event it was supposed to uh, bring as a memorial reminder? The last plague, right? And what was the last plague? Death of the firstborn. Remember that occasion, right? That God said that he was going to kill all the firstborn in Egypt unless, what? There was one thing that could deliver them. Having the lamb's blood on the door, right? On the doorpost and over the door. If that was on the door, the Lord said he would pass over that house and deliver it. And that event was key in that that was the last plague because after that plague, people of Israel were delivered from Egypt. So it was a very, very important event. And so God instituted this Passover meal. And it was a meal that consisted of a lamb. It also consisted of bitter herbs as a reminder to them of the bitterness of bondage that they experienced while they were slaves in Egypt. And this is the very meal that Jesus is eating with his disciples, as we see in Luke 22. Look at verse 14. It says there, when the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom comes. When he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. 
Now, the Passover meal, it's important to understand, traditionally had several different steps to it. We're not shown or we don't see every step of it here in Luke 22, but it's important to know that that meal had several times where they would uh, take a cup and they would have it as part of the ceremony together. And notice here that it begins with a first cup, a cup where blessing is offered, an expression of gratitude by the one leading the ceremony. And that's exactly what Jesus does in verse 17. And in fact, tells us here what is in the cup. What, what is it? What's he say there? Fruit of the vine, right? Vino, right? Wine. Fermented grape juice. And Luke doesn't mention it here, but normally after that first cup was taken where, where gratitude was expressed, there would be a ceremonial washing of hands. That was to signify, to symbolize a, a pursuit of holiness in this very sacred meal that they were taking together. And some believe that perhaps that may have been the time in the upper room when Jesus washed the disciples' feet. We don't know that for sure. But there was this ceremonial washing of hands. And then after that, the bitter herbs would be eaten. They'd usually be eaten with the unleavened bread being dipped within the herbs and the mix there. And it was, again, to remind them of the bitterness of their bondage in Egypt. And then following that, following the first cup, the ceremonial washing, and then the eating of the herbs, they would sing from the Hallel Psalms, the first two, Psalm 113 and 114. It is then right after that that they would take the second cup. And it was at that time that the leader of the meal would give instruction and reflection on the meaning of the Passover. That's referred to as the Haggadah. And that would be given as a time after that second cup or during it. And the leader would then, following that, initiate the eating of the main course, the lamb. And he would initiate that by taking the unleavened bread. And taking the bread, which was a large cracker. It's unleavened, no yeast in it. It was uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread would be celebrated right after the Passover that week to remind them of the haste that they left in Egypt so they didn't uh, have yeast in their bread. And so the, the, the one leading the Passover meal would take that large cracker, break it up, offer a blessing, and then they would eat the lamb together that had been prepared. <clears throat> and so we see Jesus doing exactly that in verse 19. But as they prepared to eat this Paschal lamb, this lamb of sacrifice of the Passover, the, the symbol of salvation for God's people. As, as Jesus began to lift that bread, and I'm sure the disciples were, were prepared for that part of the meal and what would happen then, Jesus delivers these words. He says, this is my body, which is given for you. As they were eating the lamb and and finishing that up, preparing to receive the third cup of the Passover meal. It's called the cup of blessing. Paul referred to it that way in 1 Corinthians 10. As Jesus then lifts this cup, again filled with wine, he doesn't give the normal Passover blessing. But instead he says these words, This, is, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Those two statements before and after the lamb was eaten. It's, it's no minor alteration of the meal. This was a significant thing that Jesus did. These two declarations are, are utterly profound. They're historic. They're life-altering. In fact, John MacArthur calls it the turning point in all redemptive history. In fact, these are indeed the grandest words ever spoken because consider who is speaking it and what he says. The Lord of creation the Lord Jesus Christ, 
He says in that moment, he gives his resolve that he is going to give himself, that he's going to give his life. But not for a cause or or for an ideal or for a revolution, but he's going to give himself for what? For whom? This is my body, which is for you. This is the cup, the new covenant in my blood, which is for you. I will I will give my body to be tortured, to be maligned, to be killed. I, I will spill my blood out for you. It's profound. In those two statements, we have the wonderful doctrine of atonement. That Jesus would substitute himself in the place of sinners, that he would take upon himself the punishment deserved by all of us. For we all sinners and we rebelled against God, that Jesus would die for his sheep. Isaiah 53 says he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He himself bore the sin of many. Or Paul said in Galatians 3.13 that that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. (laughs) You see in these two statements by Christ, it's a declaration of the wonderful, magnificent message of the gospel. The core of that message that that he has paid for sin, that that the punishment that we deserve has been taken, that any who desire to, to turn from that sin and to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, that Christ would forgive based upon his death. On that, for that sin. That any who would put their trust in Him, they can stand guilt free before God. That is embedded in what Jesus was saying. This is my body for you. This is a cup of my new covenant for you. And Jesus stands ready still to forgive. He stands ready still to say, if you would but turn from your sin, put your faith in me. If you would confess your sin, express a desire to to turn to me in faith so you might follow me the rest of your days. Jesus said, this body is for you. My blood is for you. You can be forgiven. It's amazing. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Communion brings us back to that very truth. And you see here why then Jesus would link the Passover meal to this memorial? Why he would... Take that meal that night and transform it in such a way on the eve of his death. Jesus is saying, I am your Passover lamb. I am your Paschal lamb. I am your the lamb of sacrifice. What was it that John the Baptist said when he saw Christ? Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus, he transforms the Passover meal by declaring no longer will this meal be something that that is done anymore to reflect on God's deliverance of you from Egypt through this lamb on the table. Now you're going to remember God's deliverance for you from sin through this lamb sitting at the table. Focus is no longer on the, the lamb's blood that was on that wooden doorpost but it is on the lamb's blood on the wooden cross 
And this memorial is a wonderful memorial. But brothers and sisters, the evil one has written his graffiti all over it. For what Jesus intended to be a, a simple and yet glorious symbol to help us remember and meditate and reflect on his sacrifice on the cross, it's been corrupted. It's been polluted and desecrated. It was in the year 1215 at the fourth Lateran Council of the Roman Catholic Church that the declaration was made official that the bread and the wine during the Eucharist are literally changed into the physical body and blood of Jesus. This was called transubstantiation, the, the transforming of the substances. And this has been the official position of the Roman Catholic Church ever since. But when Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood, did he mean that literally? Was he carving off pieces of himself to give to them? No, Jesus often used metaphor, didn't he? He often used figurative language to describe things about himself. And he would say things like, I am the door, I am the gate, I am the light. Right? I am the resurrection and the life, I am the bread of life. And he used these as pictures, as illustrations of important truths about himself, right? And he was simply doing that once again here, giving them a, a symbol, a representation, an illustration. There, there's no transubstantiation. There's no changing of the bread into his body, literally, or the blood, the wine into the blood. Jesus is in his resurrected body now in heaven interceding for us. That's where his body is. And he's chosen to keep that body for eternity he's not parsing it out and infusing it into wafers and juice here on earth and some may think well tim what's the big deal it's it's just it's just a wafer and some some grape juice or wine well i challenge you to read the third article of the official catechism of the catholic church you can find it on the vatican website section 1367 of that article says these words, the sacrifice of Christ and the sacrifice of the Eucharist are one single sacrifice. In this divine sacrifice, which is celebrated in the Mass, the same Christ who offered himself once in a bloody manner on the altar of the cross is contained and is offered also in an unbloody manner. You realize what he's saying there? This is serious. It goes on to say in the third article that this sacrament is necessary in order for you to be saved. If you don't take the sacrament, you are not going to heaven. At least not for a while. It's also there mentions a few sections right after the one I read that these the, the bread and the wine, because they are now the body of Christ, are to be worshipped as Christ. You can read it. It's there. Beloved, this is serious because you know what's happening then in that ceremony when the elements are being presented? They are being presented as Jesus is now having to sacrifice himself once again for you in order for you to be saved. That what he did 2,000 years ago wasn't enough. It wasn't sufficient. He has to do it again and again and again and again. Hebrews says a lot about that, that Jesus' sacrifice was a once-for-all sufficient to pay for any sin of those who would repent and believe. 
This is a big deal. This is not a minor doctrinal difference that we, you know what, we'll just agree to disagree on this one. No! Jesus doesn't say that. Again, read through Hebrews. It's very clear. The Bible nowhere teaches that taking communion is what is an act that will save you. That's a work, right? And what does God say about works and salvation? Doesn't he say something along the lines of it is a gift of God, not as a result of works that we should boast or by grace you've been saved? There's there's nothing we can do to earn merit before God. It is only based on Christ's one time all sufficient sacrifice for us. This was a big deal to men like Cramner and Latimer who were burned at the stake because they would not accept transubstantiation. They died because they recognized how significant it was that we believe that only through Christ's sacrifice on the cross, the historic sacrifice, that is what the Father accepted as we see through the resurrection of that same Lord Jesus on Sunday. So, during the Reformation, there, there was a move away from this idea, transubstantiation, this heretical practice. Uh, though Luther, he also believed that when Jesus said, this is my body, he did believe that was literal. He did not agree that the bread and the wine were actually transformed into Christ. What he taught was that Jesus was physically present in, with, and under the elements. That's known as consubstantiation, with the substances. Uh, kind of maybe the idea to think of this is, if you think of a sponge and water, transubstantiation, Jesus would become the sponge, but in consubstantiation, he's the water that would be taken in by the sponge. But again, that's not an accurate view, because Jesus' body is not literally in or around or under the elements. He's in heaven. The Swiss reformer Ulrich Zwingli, he rightly understood Jesus' statement to be figurative. And so he believed that the bread and the cup were symbols. Luther wasn't so happy with that. In fact, he got so worked up over that issue that he said in, uh, I think it was 1527, he said, I would rather drink blood with the Pope than have wine with the fanatics like Zwingli. Luther was ever the diplomat. Now, Calvin, he took a position between that. He did not see Christ as physically present, but, but neither did he see the, the bread and the wine as only symbols. He believed that in communion, Christ was spiritually present in a special way through the Holy Spirit. And indeed, there is a, a special sharing in Christ that takes place. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 10, which we'll look at a little bit later. But we also have to remember Jesus is always present with his body, isn't he? He's the head. We're the body. What did he say in the Great Commission? At the end of it, he said to his disciples, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so Jesus is always with his people. Indeed, this is a special ceremony, but he is always present with us. What's important to understand here in all of this is that communion is not just a memorial. <laughs> it's a special memorial. The bread and the cup, they... They're not just symbols. They're significant symbols. Beloved, it is special. These are special. For they remind us. They remind us of when it was just hours before. Hours before. Jesus would be hanging on a cross. Bearing the sins of his sheep. And just hours before that, he is saying, do this in remembrance 
of me. And then again he says it. Do this in remembrance of me. Don't forget what I've done. Don't forget the significance of the cross. Don't forget the sacrifice and what that has brought about for you. Don't forget me. We're, we're so prone, I think, at times, if we're not careful, to take things like this and, and either just make it some perfunctory exercise that we go through or, or a required ritual that we, we don't give necessarily the thought and attention that we need to. We're so prone to forget what is really important, particularly about this memorial. And what Jesus is saying here, he's not just saying, don't forget me on the cross. He's saying, don't forget the significance of what took place through me on that cross. Again, communion is a special memorial. And so we need to observe it. We need to celebrate it. We need to consider it in the way that would most honor Christ, don't we? Amen? So let's, let's do that. Let's look to our second point this morning. That is, how are we to observe communion? How are we to celebrate it? From 1 Corinthians 11, if you can make your way back there, I want you to see three ways. Three ways here. We are to celebrate communion with appreciation, with anticipation, and with agreement. The first is with appreciation. When Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, he wasn't just telling them, hey, I want, some, I want you to retain, remember some information that I have about the crucifixion. No, we have to remember something. Again, remember when it was that Jesus gave this memorial. At what meal, what ceremony did he present this in? All right, again, what was it? It was the Passover meal, right? Now, what was the tone, the atmosphere of that meal, you think? As they were reflecting back on God's deliverance from Egypt, on the deliverance of the firstborn through the blood on the doorpost, do you think they were, yeah, that was kind of a neat thing, I guess, you know, kind of neat. Do you think they were kind of just ho-hum about it? And we're supposed to be anyway, right? That was an amazing time of deliverance, a great deliverance for all of God's people. And they would look to it with gratitude, with, with joy, with blessing, with praise. That, in fact, throughout the meal, there are blessings and praises offered all the way through. That's the tone. That is the exact tone of the Passover. And it is that same tone that Jesus intended for his meal that we would partake together. For when we reflect on his sacrifice... And his death on our behalf. What what should be the the first response? The overwhelming response to that. Right? Gratitude. (laughs) Praise. Blessing. This is my body for you. This is my blood poured out for you. Wow. (laughs) Amazing. Jesus saying, I'm giving my life to save yours. And it's more than just physical life that we're being saved from right he's not talking about physical death he's talking about eternal death right spiritual death separation from god forever in hell that is what we are being delivered from through faith in christ amen i mean that is something to be grateful and thankful for and that's the tone again of this memorial and you know the disciples they may not probably didn't take in exactly what jesus was saying in that moment when they first heard these words But we know what Jesus meant, right? We've received the full revelation. We know what was going to happen just a few hours later. We know what he was going to be suffering that next morning. 
Romans 5, 6, for while we were still helpless, while we were helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. But God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by his blood, which is poured out for you, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Indeed, we are helpless, aren't we? Indeed, we can do nothing to save ourselves, can we? Nothing. But in, in this moment, stepped in God's champion. And that night, his champion made a declaration. I am going to bring victory. Victory over sin. Victory over the evil one. And I'm going to do it by giving myself. This is my body for you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Uh, Brock often likes to say it this way. Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves. But that came at a great price because Jesus withstood the full wrath of God against our sin. He suffered physically. He suffered emotionally. He would suffer the fury of hell for you. And so we echo with Paul as we reflect on that and think about this memorial with great gratitude. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9.15, Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Words can't even describe it. It is so wonderful. And that's the, the heart of a believer, to overflow with gratitude and thinking about his indescribable gift. What could anyone give you like that? <laughs> J.I. Packer said, What we need more than anything else at the Lord's table is a fresh grasp of the glorious truth that we sinners are offered mercy through faith in the Christ who forgives and restores, out of which faith comes all the praise that we offer and all the service we render. For this everlasting gospel of salvation for sinners is what in the scripture the Lord's Supper is all about. At the holy table, above all, he says, let there be praise. We give praise to Christ in communion because that is where we are reminded. That is where we declare the gospel, right? Didn't Paul say in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you what? You proclaim. You proclaim what? The Lord's death until he comes. You proclaim his death. You proclaim his substitutionary death for sinners. You proclaim in communion his love, his mercy, his compassion, his grace, his justice. You proclaim in that memorial God's acceptance of the sacrifice of Christ as seen by the resurrection. And so because communion is a proclamation of the gospel and because it is a a special communing or sharing in the blood, 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 excuse me, body and blood of Christ. It is a memorial only for those who have embraced the gospel. It's a memorial only for those who have been born again. Only for those who have been redeemed. Because in that memorial, we're declaring what the Redeemer has done for us. And if you participate in this remembrance, if you take the bread and the juice while refusing at the same time to give your life to Him, but remain in your sin, that, that's spitting in the face of Christ. That's desecrating Him and His memory. 
So if you're not a follower, a true follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then whenever those elements are passed, don't dishonor sacrifice by participating in the ceremony. Because listen, that taking communion, eating a cracker, drinking that juice, there's, there's nothing spiritual in that that saves you, that brings you any closer to God. That is not what brings salvation. It is repentance and belief and trust in Christ that brings salvation. So don't drink or eat that stuff. First, repent and ask the Lord to forgive you. And then eat and drink. If it's a genuine confession. This brings to mind something I'm often asked about regarding communion. What about children and communion? What about my young kids? I remember when one of my kids was little and we were participating in communion together and the plate was going by and and she said, can I have one of those? And I leaned over and I, said, I have a spiritual moment here. Why, honey? Well, my tummy's growling. I'm hungry. She, she didn't understand the significance of that. And as cute as your child or little toddler may be, what applies to adults regarding Christ's memorial applies to them as well, right? It is only for those who have embraced the gospel. And if your child has not demonstrated that they are a follower of Christ, then don't let them partake. Because if you do, what are you teaching them? You're teaching them then that it is just a ritual, that it is just a ceremony that you do in church, that it doesn't matter who you are or where you're at with the Lord Jesus Christ. And we don't want to teach them that, right? But but won't my child feel left out? I mean, they, they might start crying. In fact, my daughter was kind of uh, really bothered by the fact I wouldn't let her won't they feel judged by me? Probably. But you know what? That's a teaching moment. That's an opportunity to explain to them the gospel, to explain to them what the ceremony is all about, to explain to them how you can know if you're truly a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not an issue of exclusion and prevention. It's an opportunity to explain to them this wonderful memorial that He has given us. But it's only for those who believe. And it's my conviction that if your child does understand the gospel, if your child has a life that's consistent with believing in the gospel, again, recognizing their age and such, and if your child has made a public profession or declaration of his or her commitment through baptism, then they are able to share in communion. That should be the case for anybody, right? No matter the age. We'll talk more about baptism next week. But in considering communion, thinking about the tone as being a time of appreciation, of reflection on the gospel, and being grateful to God for it. It's not only a, a time of appreciation, it is also a time for anticipation. Look again at 1 Corinthians 11. Verse 26, Paul says, In communion we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes, right? Until he comes. Or that night, Luke 22, Jesus said twice, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine, I will not participate in this meal with you until the kingdom. Both of these things, these statements, they remind us of this. For communion, when we remember him, we don't just remember his death on Friday. We also remember what happened Sunday. And we remember what happened 40 days later when he ascended into heaven and the angel said, he's coming back. He's returning. And so many, you know, when, when he, again, when we think about the Lord's Supper and this, this anticipation 
this this joy, this uh, appreciation. It really is the tone of this time together. But again, so many treat the Lord's Supper almost like a funeral service, like morose and this somber, this focusing on the tragedy of it, as if Jesus was still dead. But he's not. He's not. When we come to the table... We're not just thinking about how he died. We're thinking about why he died. And we're thinking about what happened after he died. And we're thinking about what's going to happen because of that death and resurrection. Which is what, beloved? He's returning. He's returning. That phrase, until he comes, is to fuel our anticipation for his return. Yes, as we reflect on his death, we do remember. We do understand the link that it has to our sin. But at the same time, we're to be looking towards his return. When Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, he's not just calling us to look back to the cross, but also to look ahead to him on the white horse. He's not just saying lament upon what was lost, but focus on and rejoice in what was gained. So when we celebrate communion, and, and I use this word celebrate intentionally, when we celebrate communion, we, we don't lament his defeat. We rejoice and, and glory in his victory. I love how Spurgeon put it when he said this. <laughs> Spurgeon's great. I must not fail to remind you that as a memorial of Christ, while it is very solemn, it is also singularly happy. Christ has ordained as a memorial of his death, what? Why, a feast, not a funeral, not a meeting together to sing dirges over his mangled body or to go to a grave to weep. Think about that point. We don't go visit a grave and just, oh, we miss him. We're sorry he's gone. Jesus had the celebration not in front of the tomb, but the night before at this meal that was in honor of God being a delivering and saving and redeeming God. Spurgeon went on to say, regarding going to a grave to weep, that might have been a memorial, but we have a better one. We have a happy one. It is very significant, he says, that after supper they sang a hymn. Singing then? Oh yes, singing. Joy becomes a feast, and joy is to attend our recollection of the woes of Jesus, end quote. And so does does anticipation fill your heart? When you take, partake of the bread and the cup, we do consider, we do think about, we do remember his ultimate sacrifice for our redemption, but we do so with gratitude, we do so with joy, we do so with anticipation. He's coming back. So in this memorial, look through the bread and the cup, not only to see the cross, but even beyond that, to see the cloud cloud that he's going to return through and this picture beloved remember jesus said you know when they sat down for that meal he said i've longed for this moment and and we're not going to experience it again until the kingdom and so when we have it together and we're going to participate in a little bit later that's a picture that should be in our minds thinking you know someday we're going to sit with jesus himself He's going to lift up the bread and the cup. 
my body, what I did for you so that we could be here together. Picture that. I can't wait for that day. And you? (laughs) It'll happen upon his return. Just think about the celebration. So we celebrate communion. We celebrate it with anticipation. We celebrate it with appreciation. And thirdly, we celebrate it with agreement. With agreement. And at this point, some of you may be thinking, well, wait a minute, Tim. I mean, you talk about anticipation, gratitude. You know, Spurgeon speaks of joy and, and being happy. Uh, Packer talks about this idea of, of praise being offered. You say celebrate communion. But, but what about the need to examine yourself? Isn't it supposed to be a somber time of introspection and repentance? Isn't Paul admonishing them in 1 Corinthians 11? Isn't that the context and the tone? And yet, yes, it is. 1 Corinthians 11, that Tim read earlier, that it is a tone of rebuke. And at this point, I've really just been focusing on the middle of the section that he read in chapter 11 regarding the specifics of communion. But, but what about what he said before and after? Well, let's go and look. Let's look back at verse 17. It is there, Paul says, But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you in order that those who are approved may have become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your reading, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and, and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. So clearly, Paul's upset. He's admonishing them here, isn't he? What's going on? What's he admonishing them about? What bothers him? Well, it's important at this point to understand the background here a little bit of the early church. What they would typically practice, and we see this um, in the early church fathers and their descriptions, is that the church would gather together, and before they would hear from the word, they would have a meal together. And at the end of that meal, they would share communion together. And then they would hear from the apostles' teaching. But here, Paul says to them, when, when you gather together, Corinthians, you aren't taking the Lord's Supper. Yeah, the, the bread and the cup may be getting passed around, but you are not participating in that memorial in the way that Christ intended. You see, the problem here was that when they were gathering together and they took communion together, they were actually in that undermining the very heart of what that memorial was intended to communicate. Because what was happening was, you'd have the wealthier folks, and they didn't have to work late, so they would show up early. And they would start eating the fellowship meal together, while the blue-collar workers, the slaves, the servants who weren't able to get there early enough, they were still out working. And by the time they showed up, they came to the church potluck, and they looked around, and there was nothing there. It's happened to me a couple times when I've been laid upstairs. It's a little different. There was nothing there. These people who had enough, who didn't have needs, they were engorging themselves, while those who did have a need, who probably couldn't afford to have a meal, or at least not what was there, they would come and have nothing. And so Paul says, you got some folks over here getting drunk and others going hungry. 
And there the indictment wasn't so much on getting drunk, but what he's saying there is you just, you're engorging yourselves beyond what you need. And there are other folks among you in need who are going without. You are totally despising the church by doing that. That's a utter contempt, scorn. Have no care or concern for your brothers and sisters. That's what Paul says in verse 22. Do you despise? Do you, dis- do you scorn them? And the problem was, as Paul lays out here in verse 18, that there are divisions that exist among you. And indeed, there were divisions, even in this area, in the social standing and wealth, that those who had looked down upon those who had not. Yeah, they, they took communion together, all right, but that was in the midst of that despising and scorning. And so Paul gives the specifics in verses 23 to 26 of the Lord's Supper so that they would be reminded of of Christ's death and what it was all about and what it was for, particularly in their relationship with him and with one another. Paul had alluded to that connection, that relationship back in chapter 10. Turn back there for a minute. 1 Corinthians 10. He alluded to communion as he was making another point regarding eating meat sacrificed to idols. But in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16, he makes a very important point about communion. He says there in verse 16, Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. It's very interesting What Paul does here, he's mixing some very well-known metaphors about the church. Remember, many places, Ephesians, and he's going to talk about it later in, in chapter 12 of Corinthians, he describes the church as the body of Christ. Jesus as well, during communion, expressed, this is my body. And here, Paul mixes those things together in the context of speaking of communion as a sharing in the body of blood of Christ. And he says, remember, there is one piece of bread. Right? Because again, that was a large cracker, unleavened bread that they would break apart. And he says, that's one piece of bread, just as you are one. There's an intimate connection in the Lord's Supper. It is an illustration in itself, not only of Christ sacrificing his body, but the fact that we who are in fellowship with him are one body. Paul says again that the bread that Jesus held up was one bread. And that bread, that one piece of bread, he said, represents Christ's unified body. He's saying here that in communion, it is a community event. A celebration of God's people. Notice the emphasis in verse 17. One bread, one body, and then again he says, one bread. What's the point? Well, beloved, if communion is to remind us of anything that Christ's death has accomplished. It's to remind us that that death has brought about intimate fellowship, not only with Him, with His people. It's to remind us that we've been united to Him and with Him and with one another. It's to remind us that we're one body, that we're one body. What was it that was one of the last things Jesus prayed in the upper room? The high priestly prayer. They would be one as you and I are one, Father. These Corinthians, though, they were the model not of unity, but of disunity. 
For when they gathered, even at these feasts, even in the moment they were taking communion together, they were expressing division towards one another. In fact, the whole letter of Corinthians is really found the foundational theme of this letter is unity. Go back to chapter 1, verse 10. He talks about there are divisions here. And he brings up one of the divisions. And go to chapter 2, chapter 3. He talks about the fact of divisions. Chapter 6, I hear there are lawsuits among you. You're suing each other. We get to chapter 11. And, and when you gather together to, to express that fellowship and the intimacy that you have with one another because of what Christ has done and through his death, even in celebrating his last supper and celebrating the Lord's Supper, you are demonstrating division. Paul is saying essentially, enough. This is supposed to be a celebration of Christ's triumph, of his victory over sin, of his sacrifice, the anticipation of his return. And you're bringing shame and dishonor to it by how you're treating each other. Boy, beloved, isn't this a common theme we keep coming up to? Even in the minor prophets, we've seen this a lot, haven't we? What was God's problem so much with his people? Not only how they were treating him, but each other. And we see it often in the New Testament. Many of these epistles are written in regards to the problem of disunity. Philippians, that was a core issue. Ephesians, that was something he emphasized over and over again. And Corinthians, again, another letter focused on the issue of unity in the body of Christ. And so in verse 27, Paul reiterates in chapter 11 now, he reiterates the heart of communion. Look there with me. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven. He says there, verse 27, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. Paul gives here that phrase we hear often, especially in communion, taking it in an unworthy manner. But what what did he mean by that in this context? What was he talking about there? Well, if you look at verse 29, he clarifies what he means. He says, it's when you do not judge the body rightly. By that, he means not discerning rightly the nature of the body of Christ as one body. It's this idea that not giving careful regard to the body because they had been promoting disunity while partaking of a symbol of the event that had brought about unity in Christ. And beloved, again, if there's anything that we need to take this seriously. So the call to examine oneself, the call to examine ourselves in verse 28 means this specifically, to carefully examine if you are contributing to any disunity in the body of Christ. That's what he's focusing on. It means to examine your behavior towards others who are sitting with you around the table. Again, remember, this whole idea, you know, we, we sit in pews, so we're all facing the same direction, right? And we all have our individual cup, our individual cracker. We all are focused ahead in the ceremony of communion. We have to remember that the early church, and when Jesus instituted this memorial, they sat together around a table. And so they are looking at one another in the eye as they 
lift up that unleavened bread. Paul's saying, here, examine yourself. Are you right with that person across the table from you? Because, beloved, if there is anything, anything that that shows us just how serious Jesus is about unity in his body, it is seen right here. Because he's saying in these words through Paul and what he's addressing here, if you if you come to me, if you celebrate my death, if you remember and memorialize, commemorate my sacrifice for your sin, if you come and rejoice at my return, if you come and express gratitude for what I have sacrificed and what I have done, if, if you do that while being at the same time a source of disunity in my body, how dare you? How dare you do that? That's the tone here. And Jesus is so serious about it. What is he, what is he saying verse 30? As a consequence, some of you are sick or weak or have died. This really matters to him. He's saying that if there's any animosity that you have toward a fellow believer, if there's any racist attitudes, any contempt for those less fortunate, any unwillingness, to be at peace with a brother, if there's any bitterness or scorn or vindictiveness or unforgiveness. Jesus is saying, don't go anywhere near my table until you take care of that. So, beloved, the, the self-examination here, it's not so much the, the general idea of considering any ongoing sin in your life. We're, we're to be doing that all the time, Right? We're to be, as 1 John says, to be confessing our sin to him on an ongoing basis. If we were to come even to, to worship together corporately or come to sing, come to listen to his word, we have to be examining ourselves anyway, right? It's not like you can be an ongoing sin and, and sing to the Lord, but, but don't be an ongoing sin and take communion. Now, that, that should be something that we're always examining ourselves. Paul here is focusing and emphasizing on the fact that to specifically look for yourself Look in yourself, examine yourself in that moment of communion together to make sure that you are not sowing discord in the body of Christ. This is the particular sin Jesus wants us to root out, to eradicate. And we're reminded here that this celebration is something just like when we sing together, just like we listen to his word prayer fellowship when we gather together here on sunday communion again is something we do together and if there's anything that we do that should emphasize our unity as the body of christ it is communion i like how augustine illustrated this when he said one bread what is this one bread this one bo- the, the one body which we, being many, are. Remember that bread is not made from one grain, but from many. So too with the wine. Brothers and sisters, just remind yourselves what wine is made from. Many grapes hang in the bunch, but the juice of the grapes is poured together in one vessel. Great illustration. The, the large one piece of bread came from much grain. The, the juice comes from many grapes brought together. And Augustine's saying that should be a reminder, a picture when we come to the Lord's table together. And so this morning we're going to take 
It's a moment at the end of our service together to, to partake of communion together. And let this be a moment for us to first reflect on what it means and how the Lord Jesus wants us to celebrate it, to participate in it. Remember, he wants us to appreciate, to anticipate, and to agree. And so I want to give you some time now to examine yourself. Consider these questions. Give you time of prayer to the Lord. Are you fostering any disunity here in this body? Are you at odds with a brother or a sister who is either in your home or outside your home? Are you treating anyone here with contempt? Are you looking down on anyone else? Are you harboring bitterness or vindictiveness towards a fellow saint here? And if so, you just you just let the plates pass you. Don't be guilty, as Paul says, of the body and blood of the Lord. But go and make it right. Just make it right. And if it means being wronged, then be wronged. That's what Paul said back in 1 Corinthians 6. Don't have lawsuits. Just, just be wronged. But deal with it so that next time we have communion together, you can participate. And if you are able to participate in this memorial today, again, remember, it's an occasion of joyful appreciation towards Christ. It's an occasion of anticipating his return. So let me give you a few moments to speak to the Lord. Lord, we are prone to be like these Corinthians. Times where we, Lord, how we treat one another. Just reminded this morning, this passage, the importance of the unity that you secured on the cross when you defeated the power of sin. And Lord, we want to be a place that exalts the Lord Jesus by being one body. We thank you for this memorial that you've given us so that we could be reminded of of your death and, Lord, of the fact that all that it accomplished on our behalf and that you will return and we will have this meal together, all together. Thank you for... Lord, all that you've given. Help us to celebrate these times of communion with gratitude and anticipation and help them, Lord, to use them to just help in us to foster the spirit of unity. Lord, you've given us unity by your spirit and we're called to be diligent to preserve that. And Lord, may that be the case for us. Thank you for this time. We can remember you. Again, we pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.